Hi, everybody, and welcome back to yet another cracking installment of the Map Round Show. With me on the line from California is an incredible founder, which I'm hugely grateful to have on the show. His name is Frank Arellano, the co-founder and CEO of Revolve3. Welcome to the show. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. So excited to be on your show. You've been uh, certainly an inspiration for me and also part of my regular uh, morning routine to listen to your podcast. So I'm excited to be on. Oh, really? That's yeah. interesting. That's great. <laughs> I'm always amazed someone watches or listens to me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I do the show for me. If someone else is watching, fantastic. Uh, but uh, on a serious note, the, uh, you guys have really built an incredible startup. You have an amazing team. You have all the foundations and ingredients in what I believe to be a recipe for a future unicorn. Uh, and so there's a lot to get into uh, to get uh, today, guys, uh, at, with Frank. Uh, but Frank, uh, you also have a very interesting background, you and your team. Um, so I'd love for you just to kick us off with uh, a bit about the origin story and the elevator pitch about what you guys are doing. Yeah, thanks. So um, we do have a pretty experienced team. Um, we we all are have sort of long experience in corporate America. I Me mean, personally, I started off my career in a couple startups with successful exits, decided to go and take a corporate job just because I was looking for, you know, a big company on my resume. And I thought that would help me gain some experience in that space and stayed there 20, you know, 20, 21 years um, with a couple very large Fortune 100 type companies. Um, and then, you know, after that sort of period decided, okay, I need to do something different. And I always wanted to get back to sort of those startup roots. Um, it was through that experience in the corporate market um, that I figured out that there's there's a pretty big gap here in the subscription billing space. Um, I had implemented a couple of the top players in this space. Um, didn't go so well for us. Um, you know, did a bunch of research and market analysis and determined that there's a huge gap there. Most of the large enterprise types of clients that have high volume, high subscription businesses um, build their own bespoke systems. And I tried to figure out why and talk to, you know, a lot of large enterprises out there and really came down to the fact that nothing existed in market. And so a lot of these companies, you know, I talked to Hulu as, as an example and they were like, hey, we're, you know, we want to be content creators and content providers, but yet I have this billing company on the side that I have to manage, you know, with a bunch of people, a bunch of expenses. And if something existed, you know, we'd buy it sort of thing. So gave, gave us the idea to go out and start this. Um, we are SaaS based. Um, we're also Payfact with um, Adyen, uh, integrations across all the major payment providers and can provide our customers or our merchants with full subscription capabilities with lots of intelligence built into it, which a lot of them don't have, uh, a lot of competitors don't have, and then you know routing dynamically to all the major providers out there. So we're excited about this. Our team is fairly uh, robust. We have you know executives from IBM, you know, experience with you know Inger Micro and Experian and lots of big companies out there feel super fortunate to have that leadership in place um, and also fortunate to have the investors that we have, in, you know, believing in our company. Mm -hmm. So you guys um, 
are just like really scaling. Uh, and I think we need to have this conversation about how you scale uh, responsibly a, a bit later on. But you kind of have what I would describe as uh, champagne problems. <laughs> so like you build a product that's so different, that has such an unfair advantage that the market is just like, you know, it's, it's wanting this thing that you guys have built. So let's start with the problem. What would you say uh, is the problem that you guys um, have solved that's so valuable to assess uh, business? Yeah, great, great question. Uh, a former company of ours, I you know, was brought in to sort of manage the operations, um, specifically the payment side of it, and a significant um, quantity and revenue from a subscription perspective, right? Their approval rates, though, were horrible, um, and this was sitting on a bespoke system, sort of sub-70% approval rates. Um, and, and interestingly enough, the, the business kind of just figured that it was normal, right, for their industry and that sort of thing. Um, after going through the process of how do we improve that overall, and some of it was just the complexity of the different types of subscriptions we have, right, free trials, moving into a membership, refer a friend, get a discount, sometimes metered, sometimes not, you know, all of the complexity around that. There's nothing in market that could do that for them. Um, so we ended up um, having to build it again twice um, in the same uh, company, um, however, did it in a more in intelligent way. Um, and we saw approval rates and what I like to think of as collection rates, right? You have approvals, but then they decline. You can also recycle them um, and then eventually get them approved. Approval rates went from, you know, sub 70s to uh, mid 90s. Overall collection rates went to high 90s. I mean, that's think about that, right? The same customer base, no additional marketing, and you're going from a 70% approval rate to a 90% approval rate significant uplift yeah cost yeah it's massive um what is the economic impact on this i mean obviously there's a small SaaS company and then there's like an enterprise uh you know size uh, business that's doing like a hundred million in, in SaaS revenue then there's microsoft like the whale right that does like a billion dollars profit every week <laughs> so like um when, when when you guys come in you talk about uplift what what is the typical sort of you know uplift that you secure uh, for a SaaS business at scale? Because it's like, it's one thing doing like 10,000, you know, MRR, but it's a whole other animal when you're doing a hundred million uh, MRR. Yeah. On average, we're seeing a, um, anywhere between a 14 to 18% uplift. And we're, we're, we're stating those numbers and we think they're fairly conservative. Now we do have some early uh, merchants that were, had horrible approval rates, right, in the 40s. And now they're seeing something in the 70s and 80s, right? Um, so it's it's hard to justify that that's going to be the norm, given their business and the state of the platform and the, the sort of tools that they were using, right, um, which weren't helping their cause at all. Um, but I think 14 to 15% is probably a safe range based on all the data that we've seen so far. And that's still a huge uplift, right? Whether you're doing $10,000 a month or $10 million a month, who doesn't want that? Mm -hmm. So, uh, Frank, where does this problem originate from? Is this about incorrect information being passed through gateways? Is it about uh, credit card processors, you know, changing their rules? Like, where does this problem originate from? It's, it's actually a mix of all of that. 
Right. So the, the, the payment infrastructure ecosystem is a bit complex. You have your merchants, right, that are doing business on behalf of those consumers, taking those transactions, sometimes going through uh, a software platform or marketplace, then to a gateway, then to a payment processor, then to an acquiring bank. You got the card networks that, you know, have their set of rules. Um, so the rules are important, right? Everybody wants to be compliant. Um, the card networks require us to be compliant, which is a good thing, right? It protects us from fraud as consumers and lots of good reasons why. However, to me, it's, it's uh, our, my co-founder says it's kind of like the telephone game that you used to play when you were a kid. You know, you start with something and as you pass information along, by the time it gets to the end, it's something different. That's what we see a lot from the merchants that are coming to us. The quality of data they start with may be good. The quality of data that gets processed may not be the same. So for us, the way we started is we went to the banks and the processors and said, help us understand what your rules are, right? What are your fraud rules? What are the, what's the right things to pass transactionally? And it varies too, by card type, by bid number, by platform that you're sending it to. Um, gateways are notorious. There's some great gateways out there. There's others that are notorious for just having a bunch of you know connections out there, but they do different things with the data that's intended. Um, and, and so we try to, f- to um, fix those issues, right, from a data perspective based on our rule set that we got from the banks and the processors. And then we also have a layer of intelligence on top of that, right, with our with our machine learning that says, okay, this card types is, you know, better, gets better approval rates if we pass it with this data and or, you know, this processor, that sort of thing. That's where our dynamic rounding comes into play. So by being able to fix the data problem, right, which is key to us, knowing what to pass, transaction ID, network transaction ID, et cetera, um, we're able to see that uplift significantly. So, Frank, very curious to double-click on some of the stuff there. Like, what's the issue with the typical billing system? You know what I mean? Like, you would think, well, this thing can take payments. You know, what's wrong from your experience? Or where's the the thing that you know to be true about the issue with billing systems that most SaaS founders or companies are not thinking about or just simply do not know about? Where's the issue? Yeah, a lot of the, you know, I'm a fan of a lot of our competition out there. They do a great job. If you have a simple subscription plan, you know, you got whatever, 100 customers, you're billing $10 a month on the first of the month. There's some good systems out there that just do that, right? They're, and and a lot of our competitors build a sort of one size fits all solution, which when you get to the enterprise level, that's never true, right? Mm. <laughs> that's why companies build their own. So we kind of went with the approach of we're going to be able to handle any complexity out there from a subscription basis. Um, we're going to be able to handle discounts, um, a hybrid of subscription models. It might be a monthly charge plus a metered charge or something like that. Build, that's where billing systems really fall flat is handling that complexity. And then understanding once they have that information, what's the best route to process that transaction. Mm-hmm. So uh, Frank, um, is so I just want to maybe double down on this idea of complexity because I think when I've had, you know, started 
SaaS companies before that none have <laughs> done like a hundred million dollars a year. Um, but when you start out, like you, you're not thinking about what happens when you hit a certain level of scale where you're in multiple territories, there's multiple tax rules, potentially multiple processes. Things start to get like really complicated and complex later on, but you're not thinking about it when you first start out. Um, so I'm curious to ask you, um, when it comes to complexity, your system, does it does it integrate with a billing system that's on this complexity journey or is it sitting next to it? Or like walk us through like how does uh, the Revolve platform actually, you know, start to solve some of these scaling and complex issues uh, for SaaS businesses? Yeah, that's a great question. And we can live um, multiple ways, right? So we are we have pre-integration built with a lot of the um, sort of main accounting software systems out there through a, a sister, not really a sister company, but a company that's also funded by the same VC Rails. Um, so QuickBooks, um, SAP One, you know, a lot of those accounting systems where a lot of merchants manage their billing plans and stuff in those systems. Um, we have an integration to Revolve. So instead of letting QuickBooks manage the billing um, and, and, you know, processing of that, uh, that they would interface with our platform and then we'd manage that all of that information, update all of the QuickBook records um, automatically through that integration. Um, so there's that sort of level of integration. And, and it's the same for some of the uh, uh, e-commerce platforms that are out there, like Shopify, WooCommerce, BigCommerce, et cetera. Right. We get integrations built to that. Um, we also have a full, uh, fully um, functional or um, featured uh, API set. Right. So if they have a custom bespoke system, they want to just use us to call. We will manage all of the billing records on our be on their behalf and then update their systems accordingly, accordingly. Um, and then the other way is we have a, a, a JSP, a JavaScript page that they can just drop into their shopping cart experience. Right. So they have a custom e-commerce site. Uh, that information comes directly to us and then we can send them back um, information to update their records. Um, but. Typically, the way that merchants um, leverage us is we manage all of the building plan information for them. So they send us what their plans are, you know, if it's a free trial, if it's, you know, whatever the timing is from a subscription, they can manage it all within our platform, either via through a, a portal, a direct connection, an API integration. We, we handle all of the billing. Um, and there's a couple of different ways that we can handle the billing. They can leverage our AI and our knowledge and our rule set based on all of the data that we're processing, right? We've learned a lot through this, um, and the, the system is constantly on a you know daily basis, real-time basis learning, so they can let us manage it, or they can choose to manage it themselves. So there may be merchants that say, we want to process this card on this at this time to this processor, right, regardless of <laughs> – because there might be a good business reason. Um, for them to do so. So we, we give them the flexibility to be able to manage that. So um, you keep talking about AI and, and ML and these things. And it seems to me like if we took the next 10,000 startups, like they should have some kind of AI, <laughs> AI to it. Like doesn't matter what it is. could be hairdressing with AI coaching in the ear. Who knows? Um, um, how much of a, uh, of a competitive advantage 
is having AI and ML capability within your platform for doing things, you know, sitting where you sit as a pay, in terms of like the payment process, the relationship between the SaaS company and the processor, like you're sitting in the middle there and there's like million, you know, tens of millions of transactions in theory just within one enterprise account. Um, so when you think about AI and ML, how much of a competitive advantage has this actually delivered for you guys as a business and as a team? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. Yeah, you, there's there's only a few competitors that are doing it. And so right now, there, it is an advantage. Um, we knew that we had to have this going into it, right? I mean, that that's, that's what gives us a lot of the value, right? And we built the business because we knew that there was a tremendous market here, um, but that also that we can provide the value to the merchants. Um, and that was with the AI as, as part of that platform. Um, AI is event, you know, everybody's doing it right across a lot of industries and verticals. So the key for us is to ensure that we optimize that AI over time. We're only as good as our data set and our rules and, you know, the configuration of our machine learning engine. And that's key for us. So we, you know, we, we purposely hired the right data scientists and the right companies to help us um, not only implement this, but manage this on a, you know, go forward basis. Got it. Um, you've also done a lot of work around integration uh, with payment processors. So I'm just going to bring up like some of them here. There's Adian, WorldPay, Chase, and there's like a whole bunch on your website, which I've got, <laughs> I've got up for everyone. I'm curious to um, to maybe ask you as a as a CEO building doing something that's really really hard, but solving a really important problem. Um, how important strategically is partnerships to to one solve the problem in a scalable, repeatable way? But also, when we talk about scale, I spoke about the fact that you guys have champagne problems <laughs> of like you have all these you know people wanting to do business with you. Um, partnerships, how important is it for you to have the right type of strategic partnerships to enable not only your ability to solve the problem, but for you guys to actually deliver, you know, a scalable way to solve this problem. There, we, we can't function without strategic partners. You know what I mean? So we, we have um, a core competency that we do super well. Um, there's other things that we don't do right on purpose that aren't part of it. Um, and we need those partners to be able to, ensure that our overall um, value to the merchant is is um, sort of covered there. So those companies like Adyen and WorldPay have been very great partners for us, right? They're, they're not only necessary as part of the ecosystem um, as payment processors and two of the world's largest 
for sure. So they're necessary, um, but they've also been uh, very um, open and interested in helping us succeed, right? Which is important for us, especially as an early um, scaling startup. Um, there's other partners like Infinicept, right? That that were able to provide us with capabilities like underwriting, um, uh, you know, part of the fund distribution from as being a pay fact that are key to us. That would be too, way too expensive for us to go out and build on our own. And honestly, not doesn't give us a competitive advantage to do so. So it's important to find those people that can do it with high integrity, high value. Um, and we've been blessed to get those types of companies to be part of our journey here. Mm -hmm. Frank, what's your vision for this? I mean, it's it's really interesting to speak to a founder who has all these champagne problems. Like you, you know, it's it's usually you're trying to figure out how to get champagne problems in the first place. Um, but you guys, you know, by um, by virtue of like the the IP and and the problem that you guys have solved through technology, like you. Um, you, you're doing something that's truly unique. So um, my sense is, is that if you can figure out how to take what makes you unique and connect that to the world in such a way that it creates value, you can really change the world. So I'm curious to get your view, like where are you guys going? You know, like you, you, you've you achieved a, a remarkable amount of scale in a very short period of time. What's your vision for uh, for Revolve 3? Like what, what exactly um, is the outcome and contribution that you hope to make? Yeah, the payment processing um, has been uh, this way for many years, right? Where you have all of these players within the ecosystem, um, everybody kind of taking their fees along the way. Um, some of the pricing within payment processing it doesn't make sort of business sense to me, right? As a merchant, <laughs> I'm sure it makes sense to those companies that are part of that process. Um, and, and so we want to... Um, take that and and simplify it and optimize it right um and, and, and some of that we're putting we're putting that forward in the way that we operate our business like our pricing model right um our competitors charge a platform fee um a transaction fee and take a percent of the revenue um and those transaction fees um are incurred regardless of whether or not that payment approves which seems kind of counterintuitive it's like uber charging you you, you know, for delivering you to the wrong location, right? I mean, you wouldn't expect to pay for that, right? If they didn't take you to your destination. Mm -hmm. And so we've modeled our pricing that way. We only charge in approvals. We are so confident that we can optimize that performance that we're only going to charge you for the approvals and we're going to do it at a very fair price, right? That's, that's super competitive with the industry. Um, so we'd like to change that way that the the, the system works. Um, we also want to start to leverage a lot of smart technology, right? Notoriously, um, you know, banking industry is notorious for being uh, behind a little bit, you know, when it comes to <laughs> technology. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're, we're trying to kind of lift that up a bit and get it more accessible, Um easier to integrate, right? Pre-packaged um, uh, components that people can drop into their platform, easy to integrate APIs. I mean, think about Stripe and I'm a huge fan because they revolutionized the payment APIs out there, right? So I'm a big fan of that sort of um, pro uh, innovation and process. Um, so I think if we can influence in that way, that would be fantastic. We see a huge market here, right? That's 
reason why we started this. There's this giant white space from the the SaaS uh, subscription billing software market and what companies were actually spending on their billing systems. Um, so we think that there's a big market there to go after, and we hope to put a lot of focus in on that whole billing stuff. And and you know it's interesting because every industry nowadays has a subscription billing. Um, part of their business, right? I mean, it's common. It's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. Um, so, you know, we also want to grow that space um, while we optimize it. So uh, lots to unpack there. First thing I want to start with is um, is this idea of like the relationship between incumbents. So these are, let's just say in your case, might be like a credit card processor, like Visa, for instance, um, you know, mm. built on payment rails that haven't you know, necessarily changed too much over the last, well, since they were basically created. Um, and then, you know, you've got um, uh, yourselves as a startup who's innovating to your point with technology, that's a hard science problem. Like that's what you're solving, right? Like anything with AI and ML and things like this. Um, and so uh, I use this analogy of dinosaurs, right? So oftentimes like in corporates, I'm not saying it's Visa, I'm saying in general, people, corporates love to talk about innovation, but really they're like a dinosaur trying to climb a tree. Um, a typical, it's a difficult thing to do, right? It's like, you will always be a dinosaur, dude. Like leave the, leave the climbing of the tree to a startup <laughs> who can truly like innovate and escape the, the corporate inertia and things like this. Um, what is what do you see? I mean, obviously you you you've touched on these partnerships. A lot of your strategic partners are these big corporates that have been around for so long. Um, what do you see the role of a startup being in the financial services space um, in the context of innovation? Because I think I spoke to you. I think it was you, uh, but I was saying like you know, you guys are, are like yes, you're solving this problem for uh, for SaaS companies and 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 so on. But really, you're you're developing like a technology layer. You know what I mean? Like there's the business that you're in and then there's the business that you really are. Um, and so I'm curious to get your, your view. Like wh where do you see your uh, technology being used in the context of innovation in more established, you know, patriarchal incumbents um, in, in the financial services space? Because it seems to me like we cannot innovate fast enough in, in that context. Yeah, I think... Um and in, in, uh, in your sort of dinosaur analogy, and I apologize to WorldPay because I, I don't want to say they're a dinosaur, but I think they, you know, companies like that, the smart ones, the smart corporations um, agree with you and realize that there are innovative startups out there that they not only need to closely watch, um, but partner with, right? And I think it's one of the things that attracts us to the likes of WorldPay and Adyen, right? Because they see what we're doing um, we can talk about it in an intelligent way. We can implement it in an, in an effective way that not only benefits them, um, but benefits the merchants overall, right? In, in a compliant way, right? We're not, we're not, we're doing things that sort of fall within the rules, but we're doing it in a, just a smarter way, I think. Um, it's, it, world pay is interesting, right? Because if you think about them and we say world pay, but, you know, FIS, you know, Lytle, Vantive, FIS, world pay, think about all the acquisitions they've done throughout the years, right? Um, they, they, they do follow companies like us, right? And rely on us to innovate and then eventually buy them, you know, and bring them mm -hmm. into their ecosystem. Not saying world pay is going to do that with us, but that's, you know, been definitely an MO for them as they grow. So I do think we are an important part of a lot of the big companies, um, you know, future strategy mm -hmm. and the smart ones will pay attention. 
Yeah, exactly. And you know, it's an important thing to labor, um, I think, Frank, because um, because what you have done is truly like valuable, like I would suggest, uh, especially for, for a corporate that's looking for ways to retain market share, remain relevant and things like that. And in Africa, there's this model of like B2B to C. So uh, there's, a, there's a legit financial services company uh, called Snapscan. So it was a startup, um, and they created a, a mobile payment uh, mechanism using a QR code. So you download the app, log, load your credit card on the back end, and then um, merchants like at markets and things like that, you know, even retail stores, they would have a little pop-up lollipop banner with a QR code on it branded as Snapscan. Um, and then you would whip out your Snapscan app and you wouldn't have to take out your card and go through that whole painful process. And you would scan the QR code and it would load up the, uh, the, the cost and then you would pay through the app. So it was a simple thing. Now that should have been like Africa's first unicorn. So instead of that, what happened was now they needed to scale. So what happened was Standard Bank, which is the biggest, uh, one of the biggest banks, if not the biggest bank by market cap in Africa, came along to them and said, yo, why don't you come and work with us? Because we have 10 million customers. And so obviously, if you're a founder, like you want also 10 million customers. And the question is like, well, how fast do you scale? Now, in Africa, the interesting insight here is that we don't have like this massive consumer market. So we don't have 300 million consumers. We only have like bankable consumers, probably around like 10 million, eight to 10 million. So if you're a startup and you want scale, you have a choice. Your first choice is, well, I can try and scale myself and raise money. There's only like a handful of venture capital firms in uh, <laughs> in Africa. To put it in perspective, there's a hundred startups that have raised a million dollars in Africa in the last 12 months. In America, there's 12 and a half thousand, just to put Africa in perspective. So what happened was Standard Bank came along and bought them. And unfortunately, it developed, and as a consequence of that, the promise of like, yes, well, um, we're going to give you 10 million customers didn't actually transpire. So they wound up selling on this promise, which wasn't delivered, and they could have been a unicorn. And so they didn't, that, you know, the whole thing just actually became, the, to, it was to their detriment. Um, what's, your, what's your advice? I mean, you talk, you're a startup with innovative technology. You're like a, a US version of Snapscan, different context, of course, but you're talking to these companies. I know for a fact, like at some point, someone's going to come along and go, listen here, Frank, I think we should make you a nice little offer because <laughs> you're solving a problem that would take us, you know, a measurable amount of time and money to solve ourselves. Um, when do you know, as a founder, um, when is the right time to to kind of say, okay, you know, it's time for us to do a deal or not? Yeah, I, and I think um, you know every founder is going to be different, and you know certainly every business is going to be different. We've had one offer so far, which we said no to um, politely um, and quickly, right? <laughs> we want that question to linger. Um, and for for me, it was about we're not I'm not I haven't fully developed our vision and our strategy yet, right? So I mean, there's also a personal aspect to this. Like I'm a builder, I want to see something built out, and for me, it's important to build that first. You know, there's going to be lots of hiccups along the way. We're going to make a lot of mistakes, but I want to get to that sort of scale, right? And and see it in market. Um, and that, you know, and whether or not I'm making money at that point, um, we certainly hope so. And, you know, our forecast is there to support that, but I want to see that through. So for me personally, 
I got to get to that point first before I start entertaining offers. Now, obviously, I have investors and, you know, we'll always discuss options if they come forward. Um, but I would like to see this, you know, all the way through at least. Yeah, um, it's a it's an interesting question. Like I think my last company, um, so the one the last company I sold was to an Australian recruitment firm, and from the t- from the the, the 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 timeline was super short. It was like eight, eighteen months from like zero to exit was eighteen months, and it was an IP sale. And then in my services business, I had I think my first offer came after about you know a, a similar period, eighteen months to two years. And and it was from like a big customer of ours. And usually it's weird, right? Like the customer is the one that comes along and goes, mm-hmm. yeah, I think we need to be like talking more seriously about a marriage. Um, and so it's interesting to to figure out as a founder, like when is the right time and how much is enough for you, right? Because I think if you if you really care about the problem, like you really care about it, then there's then there's not enough money. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, because it's a problem you care about so deeply that the, the, if you sold, you would regret it because your your sense of meaning and purpose and all that kind of stuff is would I would imagine based on like feedback of I've had from other founders who've exited like when they sell a lot of them go into depression like they're like nine out of ten of them it's like a ridiculously high uh, amount of um, uh, founders um, and you know because there's so much of their sense of purpose is wrapped up in 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 what they do every day um, I want to change gears. You mentioned earlier that you know there's a lot of SaaS companies out there, of course, but there's a lot of companies that are not SaaS enabled, or they're not. They don't, um, in terms of their revenue type, they are not uh, repeatable uh, or driven through repeatable revenue. So they may be doing big project fees or whatever the case is. Um, what's your advice to a founder, a Frank? on how to actually transition, right, from this fixed free sell-deliver, 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 horrible business model. <laughs> Be great to pay your whole uh, salary bill on day one every month. That's kind of the dream, right? But it's a difficult thing to transition. It changes systems and processes and people and thinking and mindset and all this kind of stuff. What's your advice to a founder who's like, hey, I would like a higher valuation. The macroeconomics of the market are not the best. They're not the same as they were two years ago. Um, and I want to get a bit of valuation. And I think having repeatable revenue is a way to do that. But I'm not. I'm. I'm stuck. I don't know how to actually transition. What's your advice to that uh, founder? Yeah, you know, it obviously depends on the vertical um, that we're talking about. But it's the train has already left the station. I mean, (laughs) if you think about what investors, what's important for investors, I mean, they're looking for that recurring, repeatable revenue, right? Um, And you know, I think about Adobe was one of the first ones to move to a subscription business right in the software world and people thought they were crazy and look at their valuation when they did it where they are now. I mean, it's significant, right? And and it was painful for them, um, especially being one of the early leaders in that space. Um, But it certainly paid dividends. I, you know, I would think that, you know, you're probably going to want to ensure that you have the right support within your organization, whether it's a leadership perspective or a partner that's going to help you through that transition. Um, that's what you know. I've relied on in in prior companies that I've been part of, um, but if it's where your industry is going or where your vertical is going, and it's where you're going to get you that sort of higher valuation, you just got to bite the bullet and get it done and live through the pain through that period, mm-hmm. right? And know that you're going to come out better on the other side. Yeah, it, it is a painful transition, and I think especially if you if you're a services business. Um, 
like my sense is it starts to build some kind of product that solves some kind of use case that's more like a, um, an augmentation of what you do as a services business. Um, and then over time, you transition from services to product. So product first, then services. So services become a value-added function strategically as opposed to uh, you know, being front and center when you are commercializing your business on an ongoing basis today. Yeah, I think it's, the companies have that flexibility, right, to start small, implement it on a particular segment within their business. That's always beneficial. Um, get the processes built, get them optimized, and then sort of migrate the rest of it over. That's certainly a good approach. Mm -hmm. Frank, um, what you're doing is hard, and I'd love to have a bit of fun with you. If I gave you the keys to the Matt Brown Show time machine, and I said, listen, go back to day one with you and your founding team. <laughs> on day one, you're like, we're going to do this thing. We're going to solve this problem. Um, what's, what, what, what advice uh, would you give yourself about building this business? Probably three things that I'd focus on. Um, one, I would say raise money earlier, right? <laughs> than I, where, where we did. Um, and that's only because the macroeconomics have changed, right? So we're in this weird period now. Um, last year is a ton of FinTech money this year, not as much. Um, so, you know, we're trying to time our next raise, um, and, and trying to forecast when that is going to bounce back, um, you know, is, is a little bit of a math problem for us. Um, the second thing is, is I would say to implement or, or to um, find the, those strategic partnerships that we now have earlier in the process because they, they've accelerated us through this. And we didn't know that in the beginning. We were kind of, you know, huddled down and sort of building, you know, as much as we could. Um, but we could have done a better job if we got others involved earlier, I think. And then the third thing is, is I would say I would have gone faster, to be honest. You know, I, you know, part of it was, um, and then maybe this is the corporate operations executive in me going, let's do this in a sort of um, a uh, mature sort of process way, right? Let's build it. Let's test it. Let's verify it. Let's validate it. Let's, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I, I think our, 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 our overall end solution was strong and we could have gone a little bit faster than what we did. We took the time and part of it was, you know, we started during COVID, right? So the, the, the whole world, you know, the, the sort of financial um, um, macroeconomics thing was kind of up in the air. Um, so in our defense, you know, we were conservative. Um, but I think we kind of probably should have accelerated a little bit faster out of COVID. Mm -hmm. Well, so the two things I want to unpack with you. The first thing is around raising money. So you guys obviously have investors. You've raised a significant amount of money. Um, and um, and as you touched on, the macroeconomics of it uh, today anyway are are not as exciting as they were. There's, a, I think the last number I, I heard was like year on year, VC capital total amounts invested in North American startups is reduced by like 30%. It's a lot. It's a lot. You've got Series B, C, D uh, investors moving earlier into seed stage Series A um, to offset this risk of you know not or the valuations not being as high as they could be because of the markets and hyperinflation, all this kind of stuff. Um, and so the 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 other side of the coin is that every startup founder I speak to and I speak to them every single day is like in some kind of a raise. Like either they're in a raise this quarter, and if they're not, it's going to be next quarter. Um, and so it's coming, like they're raising money, like that's that's the true the truth of it all. Um, so my my question to you, uh, Frank, is having been successful in this space, 
What's your advice to a, a founder now about raising money and with the market being the way that it is? Yeah, I, there is still money out there, right, for quality um, uh, opportunities. So I would say always raise as much as you can get, um, you know, when the money is available, because we don't know what's going to happen over the next 12, 18 months. And no one no one can predict that. I mean, we all have some good insight to how that's going to play out. But if you have the opportunity, take it. I think um, now is a good time to to raise. I mean, I know it's down 30% from you know year over year, but it could be even worse next year, you know, depending on, you know, where the numbers play out. Um, and then, you know, it's interesting because um, we're, we're looking at, we're in the process of our next raise, like you said, right? We're, I'm constantly fundraising <laughs> and trying to figure out when the right raise is and adjusting our burn rates and match that and stuff, you know. And so we're at this point now, we're trying to decide, right? Do we continue our burn rate? Do we slow it down a little bit? You know, trying to predict where that market is. You know, there's, you know, there's some advisors that are um, pushing us to burn as fast as we can, do another raise earlier, right? We think that the value is there from from our, for our company, you know, um, as opposed to kind of slowing it down a bit. Um, so it's interesting, and we're you know we're having to go through that assessment now, and it's going to be fun to see where we end up. Mm-hmm. Um, just uh, interestingly, like. Um... Uh, this uh, this idea of burn rate like it's 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 such an interesting conversation or a topic within the conversation of startups for me to have um with with you uh, frank and other founders is that like how have like you in this awkward position right like you've got an investor who's like yo dude like i need a return and you feel obligated to deliver on that because they're helping you at the end of the day uh, giving you like the fuel for the rocket engine um and then on the other side you've got your business you've got your people um and so uh, and we touched on this a friend and you would come here but it's about this idea of like well if you scale irresponsibly in other words you just took the money and you put 40 percent of that into like facebook google uh you know like the bit and amazon for instance just to because you need a scale so 40 percent of that goes into growth um and then you know because you have to spend it but then you're putting a lot of pressure on the operational model uh, and systems of the business you may not have the right people in the right bus seats you may not be able to find the right people we all know ceos like today are like really struggling with this idea of talent scarcity like how do we get the right people on the right bus seats but just to find get the people to come join us at all because there's another 10 companies who also they can they have the you know there's more jobs available than there are people um, and so this this is the the issue, right? And so you, you're being forced on one hand, forced, obligated to spend burn cash, right? <laughs> because you want to get the scale. Um, but then you also want to kind of balance it, right? You don't want to be like, oh shit, like we're putting this thing in the dirt and we because we, we're, we're being irresponsible about the type of growth um, that's right for us today. You know what I mean? Like tomorrow is another day. Like next quarter is another quarter. Like it's, you know, I get to choose. Um, but but you, you're being influenced by advisors, like you said. Like, you know, one guy's like, well, you know, just take it easy for another. And then it's like, no, no, no. Like you got to go, you got to go. Um, so I'm curious to double click on this context. And my question, Frank, to you is like, how do you how do you balance all of this? You know, it's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. Um, you've got inputs and outputs, and and it's just like ah, it, it can be like quite overwhelming. What's your advice to a founder on scaling responsibly and balancing the needs of an investor versus you know the needs of the business? 
Yeah, I, I I personally love input, especially from our investors and advisors, right? That's it's super valuable to me, um, not just on sort of strategy going forward, um, but just overall feedback, right? That's a gift to me and we'll always take that in. Um, however, we we I'm a data guy and most of my leadership team are data people, right? So we will take that input. Um, we'll also look at the numbers. Um, there, there is a, a cool sweet spot for us here. The, the macroeconomics actually um, are good for our type of business, right? Because companies are more focused on things like approval rates and collection rates, trying to get you know the most they can out of their dollars being spent. Um, so solutions like ours become even more important. Um, so we want to be able to take advantage of that. Um, but I do think that, you know, I love your comment about scaling responsibly. Um, because we typically will always lean towards that, right? How do we scale in a way that we maximize the opportunity that's in front of us, but don't throw away a bunch of money and get caught with our pants down in six months sort of thing, right? So um, we are trying to accelerate as quickly as we can, given the circumstances um, and given the the economic conditions. Um, but we also want to be protective of the business itself, right? And making sure that we are here um, in, in 12 months to be able to, um, you know, do additional fundraising and grow beyond that, um, mm-hmm. you know, grow beyond these next 12 months. Mm-hmm. Um, just sticking with, um, you know, scaling responsibly and the, and the talent uh, angle to this conversation, uh, Frank is, um, you know, I, th- one of the, I was at a Vistage meeting uh, yesterday, um, and, CEOs confidence level is still relatively high, like 63% of CEOs across their global network are going to hire uh, in the next quarter. And I think that's down like, you know, eight percentage points on the quarter before. Um, And so uh, talent is obviously a key enabler of, of scale, right? So people, business is basically people, they're your biggest assets. And yet we're coming out of this pandemic um, and we're sitting with the opportunity to leverage a distributed team. In other words, talent pools in different markets and things like that. And I know you're thinking and doing this this type of strategy um, to to create the best business and team possible. Um, what's your advice to a founder around distributed teams and the kind of future of work? Because I think it's a really important point to 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 discuss with you today, um, and um, and what you've learned from executing on, on this sort of a strategy. I, I think distributed um, work uh, and talent is actually necessary, you know, especially for us. We want to be a global company. It's not just about the U.S. or California. Um, and and so, you know, being open to those types of situations and making sure that it's effective, um, both for the talent, right, um, and for the company is, is important. Um, we were lucky as we started during covid um, that there was resources that were available to us, right? That we may perhaps maybe we couldn't have afforded or they wouldn't have um, given us their ear. Um, so uh, we landed some fantastic talent during that period. Um, right now we're seeing a bit of a different problem, right? To your point, this, the scarcity of the talent, right? They're, they're being um, um, courted by many other companies out there, right? And uh, not everybody wants to go to work for a scaling startup. Um, So that is a challenge for us, but by being able to open up um, our, uh, our visibility to other regions, um, we, you know, we have a, we have talent in Poland, we have talent in the East coast of the United States. Um, We're also looking in Latin America now, which is high quality resources there. Um, 
COVID, you know, it it is as horrible as it was as a pandemic um, from a you know a business perspective, the the you know ability for people to work sort of you know remotely, it benefited all of us. And I and I think a lot of those challenges that companies faced, um, you know, a couple of years ago um, are are gone. I mean, I mm. see a great level of collaboration and interaction regardless of where they are. Um, and I think it's been super effective for us, uh, not only from an output perspective, um, but also from a cost perspective too. You know, I, I, I'm in Southern California, Laguna Beach, beautiful area, by the way, you know, home to, you know, Bill Gross, Warren Buffett had a house here many years, you know, it's a, it's a very expensive neighborhood to live in, right? I'm not sure I can afford to buy talent, you know, all my talent in, in Laguna Beach, um, but being able to leverage that out across the world um, gives me um, cost effectiveness. Um, and then for my type of business, which is a 24-7 SaaS platform, it gives me that sort of follow the sun um, sort of operational organization that is important for us. Mm -hmm. Curiously for me and uh, for, for some of the some of my audience who maybe know the name Bill Gross, have you met him? I, I yeah, um, coincidentally at Ralph's, which is kind of funny. Um, supermarket. Um, <laughs> you know, he was in line in front of me um, buying some hamburgers and uh, hamburger buns and things like that. I didn't really talk to him. You know, it's kind yeah. of yeah. out of place to you know have a business conversation with him. But yeah, I've yeah, seen yeah. him around town quite a bit, and huh. uh, his new wife. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw Mr. Buffett in town a couple times too. He sold his house. I don't know five or six years ago, but he had it here for I don't know, 30 years or something mm. like that. But. So uh, Bill Gross um, did this TED talk and he was, um, you've probably seen it, but he was, uh, I want to talk to you about th this point here. And the story goes that, mm. um, you know, he was looking at like all the businesses that he did scale, you know, to become unicorns. But then he looked at also the ones like th that didn't scale that under his leadership, looked at, you know, startups that failed during the dot-com bubble, like Supervan, for instance, um, and he, you know, and he was like saying, you know, people talk about like team. We spoke about team. People talk about funding. We spoke about funding. Um, and you know, we speak about business model and partnerships and all these things. And yes, they matter. Um, and he was saying, you know, uh, that like the number one reason from his perspective, like when a business scales or is going to scale, like like revolve, um, uh, is really about timing. He said, like, if you're too early, you miss it. If you're too late, you, you know, like, you can't displace incumbents. Um, and I'm very curious to get your view, uh, Frank. Like, what role has timing played in your success? It's it's everything. I mean, honestly, right? So, you know, the timing of um, starting a company during COVID actually was a benefit to us um, in getting the right talent and leadership and team in place. Uh, the timing of coming out of COVID to do a raise was perfect. The market was, you know, going up, you know, a lot of investment had been on hold for the prior 12 months. Everybody was itching to, you know, get that investment into market. Um, that was huge for us. Uh, this economic downturn is, you know, sending people our way. I mean, there's a number of different things that have happened that we've benefited from. So it's been a very key part of our early success so far. Mm -hmm. A couple more questions, then we'll wrap up, Frank. So I spoke to Billy uh, Brash. He uh, is the founder of Dark Horse. You, you and him uh, should definitely connect. Um, also doing amazing things. 
Um, and I asked him, I was like, hey, man, you know, because like, he actually moved from the East Coast over to uh, to, to the Valley. And, he, and um, I said to him, you know, like, what role has the Valley, the environment of the Valley actually played in your, in your ability to scale? Um, and he shared a funny story uh, with me. And he said, you know, the thing about, uh, you know, just because he's, I think, um, his investor, I forget his name, uh, Scott Sandel, has done like 22 IPOs. Um, and he said, you know, if you go, if you're a startup founder and you go, look, I want to change the world like this. And it doesn't matter like how ridiculously like it sounds. If you go to like someone in the Valley, they'll go, Hmm, I reckon this guy will probably do it. You know, <laughs> here's a million dollar check or whatever the case is. Um, and so I'm curious to get your view, uh, Frank, like what role has the Valley and, you know, California as an environment, as a system, uh, played in, uh, in your success and, and ability to scale? Yeah, it's been huge for sure. I, I, I think that's exactly right. You know, I think there's a lot of value that investors place on sort of where you're from, the environment that you've done business in has been key. Um, not only the fact that we're from California and, you know, we have all those Silicon Valley ties, um, but just our history in corporate America, our history in, you know, having startups and exiting. I mean, all of that plays into the confidence that our investors have. And, you know, and, and we've turned down investment. You know, it's really interesting as you go through this process and we've been lucky to find the right investment team for, you know, our business and our vision and stuff like that. And we've also turned stuff down that wasn't a good fit there. Um, but having the, I, you know, the experience and the pedigree and the connections that we have as founders and leaders has been, you know, remarkably important. Right from a capital raise perspective, mm -hmm. and beneficial. I mean, we've been lucky. Yeah. Well, you make your own luck. That's my view. You know, it's like the harder you try, the luckier you get. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we we work hard too. I mean, you know, there's something to be said. Like we do the work, and you know, that's always important as well. Amazing, Frank. Let's wrap this up, Ed. So. Um, I always ask uh, founders who are, are truly you know, like putting a dent in the universe. I find a lot of founders are like putting, getting dents put in them rather than the other way around. Yeah. Uh, but uh, why do you do what you do, Frank? Like what gets you out of bed in the morning? I'm a builder. I love building stuff. You know, I love um, solving problems. I was that kid, you know, when I was young and my grandparents' rotary telephone stopped working. I was thinking it was like eight or nine years old. You know, I grabbed some tools, took it apart, tried to figure it out and you know, ended up fixing it, which I don't know how I did it to be honest, but that's just my personality. Like I can't, my, you know, my wife was teasing me before I started this company because she was hoping that I was going to retire or something. Um, and to me, I just, you know, this is, I don't know what retirement is. I mean, that's a, mm -hmm. probably a whole other show that you probably need to do is what is retirement. But for me, this is just who I am. I like, I like finding problems. I like putting solutions out that fix problems. Um, and that's important to me. And that's how I find enjoyment. And, you know, mm -hmm. well, Frank, <laughs> yeah, it, it is as simple as that. And by the way, like I'm the exact opposite of you. Like if you show me a toolbox, I'm like, no dude, like my idea of hell is an Ikea box arriving. <laughs> Yeah, well, my idea is how do I make that better? You know, <laughs> <What are> the... <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Well, look, Frank, it's been a real privilege having you here, man. We've covered a lot of ground. Uh, great to get your, your story on the Bolton California series. Um, I'm very excited to see where you guys are going to go and, and wishing you and the team all the very best for the future. 
Uh, thank you for having us. Uh, we're such big fans of the Matt Brown Show and excited to be on. Thank you. Anytime. Thanks, Frank. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you all again soon. Ciao. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.